Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. All right, they're all set. You want to start? I thought we had. So we have. That snuck up on me. <laughs> I'm confused. I don't even know what day it is. I know. Right now, we were we were watching something last night, and uh, I was responding to some texts and emails and messages, and I kept saying it was Wednesday, mm. and I'm not sure why I got Wednesday in my head. I don't know. We we went out one time this week. Yep, we Did- made a a journey into town. Uh, just like the uh, Little House on the Prairie days. Yeah, except instead of going in to buy dry goods at the uh, local store, we went to pick up a ping pong table at a friend's house. Yeah. But we socially distanced. Oh, for sure. As best as we could. And it was important. It was an emergency. We we needed a ping pong table and they were giving one away. Yeah, it was essential. The only thing we saw the entire trip... <laughs> We're driving down a heavily retailed district of Bangor, Maine, uh, Broadway, and there is nobody on the streets. A lot of the businesses are shuttered, but we saw one guy, one guy, and he was selling fresh scallops out of a cooler. And Kat's like, I wonder how business is for him. Um <laughs> I don't think now's the time to buy fresh seafood from some rando. This is important. With a cooler during a pandemic. Mmm, <laughs> pandemic scallops. They're the best. Anyway, welcome back to The Box. We're glad you're here. And Kat, you go first. Oh, okay. I thank you yeah. for telling me because... Yeah, we know. Yeah. So national flags have not always been a thing. Um, With the emergence of a more nationalist sentiment from the late 18th century, uh, national flags did begin to be used in a like civilian context. So historically, flags originate as military standards, and they were used as field signs. And the practice of flying flags indicated the country of origin outside of the context of warfare. It didn't become common with the uh, until like the age of sail that's amazing so basically flags were for like you said military purposes Mm -hmm. so soldiers would know who to shoot (laughs) pretty much but even then it wasn't used like uh it was more of a locality thing it was more like hey we're over here yeah yeah, and or um there were uh 
we'll we'll get there. No, that's that's true. Um, Civil War. That's they had the color bearers, and yeah. that was their job to lead the troops in the direction. That's what, how you knew where to go, and and because that was the situation, um, the color bearers, the people who picked up the flag and carried it, were the ones who were most frequently shot to shit. Yeah, they rarely survived. Yeah, it wasn't a great spot to be in. Not a good position. Uh, So until the 18th century, people didn't travel much between countries. And, you know, given the cost and the time involved in travel, the national identity was less important than allegiance to like local municipalities or Hmm. states. Um, And they were usually ruled by lords or, um, you know, families. And so crests were a thing, but national flags weren't a huge thing. So, of course, they're, you know, the monarchies, they had the coat of arms from the royal family, and that changed with each new ruling power. Most flags were reserved for wars to identify military units on the field of battle, and each regiment had its own insignia. And to answer your question, yes, we're talking about the history of flags today. Okay. And it's not even flag day. See, we've been locked in this little place for way too long. We're getting a little punchy. (laughs) I I think of this as like a history of the fork edition, Uh where it's like, you don't think it's interesting, but gosh darn it, it is. Okay, go, go. I'm interested. So some flags came to be because of... Well, let's call them organizational changes. So the origin of the Union Jack, for instance, go back to a 1603 when James VI of Scotland inherited the English and Irish thrones, um, thereby uniting the crowns. So on the 12th of April, 1606, a new flag to represent this regal union between England and Scotland was specified in a royal decree. And so it was like the flag of England uh, red cross on a white background, and the flag of Scotland, known as the uh, St. Andrew's Cross, would be joined together, forming the flag of Great Britain and the first Union flag. So it was kind of an overlay. Yeah. It was a mashup. I didn't realize that. Um, The U.S. flag, for instance, it was first adopted as a naval ensign in 1777, but began to be displayed as a generic symbol of the United States after the American Revolution. And the French uh, tricolor, which became a symbol of the Republic in the 1790s. So, like, revolutions spurred flags sometimes because, hey, this is ours now. We want to represent that. And, you know, there's there's a big uh, feeling of um, independence and freedom and uh, wanting to reclaim as your own. So that in, during this time was a popular reason for uh, the creation of national flags. Hence the, the term rallying around the flag. Yeah. So most countries were declaring a national flag right around this time, again, the age of sail. And since flags were designed to be flown on ships, the rectangular shape was best for catching wind and being readable from a distance. But there are no rules or no international governing bodies that tell a country what a flag can and cannot be. Yet all flags except for one, are rectangles. Which one isn't? This is according to Curious.com. Nepal. The landlocked nation saw no reason to be like everyone else, and their flag is two triangles.
triangles stacked together, forming a five-sided shape with two tapering points hmm. called pennons. Pennons were a common shape for banners in Asia for centuries, mostly used in Hindu and Buddhist temples, but only Nepal turned them into a flag. And, and pennants are now used for sports teams, like baseball in America, you win the division, you win the pennant, which is a championship flag. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. See? Yeah, no, I, 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 I didn't doubt your flag <laughs> storytelling abilities, not once. According to Atlas Obscura, the history of the flag of Nepal is vague, though. No one knows who designed it. A version of the flag was found in a French book from 1928. It shows a very similar flag to what's used today, except with a green border rather than blue. And there's a sun and a moon on the flag. But in the early version, there are faces on the sun and moon. So by uh, 1962, the flag's colors were firmly red, white, and blue, though it's unclear how or why that change happened. So flag terminology is the nomenclature or system of terms used in vexillology, which is the study of flags. And some of these things, like these terms you might be familiar with, like the field or the emblem, but some you may not. So a badge is generally the coat of arms or a symbol of uh, the heritage mm -hmm. of a family. Mm -hmm. The canton is any quarter of a flag, but most commonly means the upper hoist quarter, such as the field of stars on the U.S. flag. The charge is a figure or symbol appearing in the field of a flag. The fimbriation is a narrow edging or border, often in white or gold, on a flag to separate the other colors of the flag. So, like, you can see an example of that in the South African flag. There is... Um, white and gold lines separating the other colors. And then there's the fly, which is the half or edge of the flag farthest away from the flagpole. More than 75% of all national flags include the color red. More than 72% include the color white. And a whopping 30 national flags have red, white, and blue color combination, stars, stripes, and crosses being exceedingly common. Do you think that's because that combination of colors is more easily seen from a distance? Well, the colors do represent deep-seated meaning and representation. Um, so it's not necessarily about being recognizable, but about the meaning behind it. I see. So I see. white on a flag is seen as a symbol of peace, purity, and harmony. Red stands for power, revolution, vibrancy, and uh, war. Other meanings can also uh, include courage and domination. Blue signifies determination, liberation, alertness, and good fortune. Black is also used to represent determination, um, sometimes also used to uh, signify ethnic heritage and or the defeat of enemies. Green is often seen as a symbol of agricultural influence as well as prosperity and fertility. Hmm. Yellow or gold is a symbol of wealth and energy, like the sun, and can represent happiness. And orange is viewed as a representation of courage and or sacrifice. So each country designs its flag to symbolize its history, its culture, its people. And the color meanings can vary uh, quite a bit depending on the country. Some examples are 
India, for instance, the colors of the Indian flag are saffron, white, and green, which stand for courage and sacrifice, purity and faith, and fertility, respectively. The people who are making the flags um, put into it the ideas uh, that they think are important in the creation of their country Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. what their country stands for, uh, the history and culture. Well, let me ask you this. That being the case, Mm -hmm. and the official Box of Oddities freak flag is white and brown, what does that stand for? Um, White is, what, purity and virtue and kindness? Is that what you said? Something like that. And brown would be poop. I don't think... Um, that's what it means. Because clearly we didn't put any thought into that. Well, also, um, the, the freak flag being brown is only because of a filter that I used. It was originally made to be gray. Huh? Okay. So. See, I did not know this. I'm learning <laughs> so, so much that today. That represents the history of the freak flag. <laughs> <laughs> Austria. The red and white of the Austrian flag symbolizes the remembrance of the Duke's blood-stained coat during battle, (laughs) um, which is kind of badass. And Italy, their flags, red, white, and green colors have two meanings, charity, faith, and hope, or the bloodshed in the wars of Italian independence, and the Alps Mountains range covered in snow, which is kind of neat. The flag of Denmark holds the Guinness World Record for the oldest continuously used national flag. It's also known as the Danenbrog or the Danish cloth. And the design of a white Scandinavian cross on a red background was officially adopted in 1307. Shut up. Oh, my God. Perhaps earlier. So here are some of the weirder flags of the world, and this is according to The Independent. Mozambique is the only national flag in the world which features a modern assault rifle. The AK-47 is supposed to represent uh, defense and vigilance in a country that dealt with civil war for so long. Okay. The Sicilian flag bears three legs in the shape of a triskelion, which is supposed to represent the three corners of the island. Hmm. So in the middle of the flag, there's like three bent knees uh, kind of hooked together. Oh, and, okay. And okay. it makes a little shoop, 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 shoop. I can picture that. Yeah. A small republic for just six months during the Russian Civil War in the early 1900s, the North Caucasian Emirates flag featured a green field with three stars and a crescent moon. Mm-hmm. But they were arranged in such a way so it was two stars on top, one star in the middle, and then the crescent moon was in the shape of a smile. And I don't know if that was <laughs> unintentional, but it seems pretty obvious that they made a smiley face on their flag. <laughs> and that lasted six months? Yeah, just about. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And finally, uh, Bermuda's flag bears the British red ensign and a coat of arms that shows the 17th century ship Sea Venture that was deliberately crashed by Admiral George Summers in a bad storm. So the flag kind of bears a very odd, ironic resemblance to the Bermuda Triangle's reputation for uh, stealing ships in the sea. Hmm. Um, it's kind of interesting. Wow. That you just It's like Bermuda and then this half a ship poking up out of the sea. And it, you know, that's yeah. a little wow. unsettling, Indeed. I think. 
It's amazing the power that the flag has. It represents so much history. We, we went to the Smithsonian earlier this, this year and we saw the uh, Old Glory, the flag that Francis Scott Key wrote, the Star Spangled Banner about. Right. And, and just this overwhelming sense of history uh, just kind of washed over me. Yeah, it's certainly impressive. And uh, I think it's really interesting how Old Glory, that like that that enormous flag that that has been through so much there's like a chunk cut out of it <laughs> because people were like i'd like to have a piece of this yes <laughs> not how you behave people yeah, yeah. Uh, make some elbow patches not cool yeah we were watching a documentary about uh about Disney and Disney World, Disneyland and Disney World. And they mentioned that like Main Street USA, when you walk in, there's a giant flagpole in town square with a big American flag flying. And then on the rooftops all the way along Main Street, there are a series of American flags, but they're not really American flags. There is a law in the States that you have to bring the flag down at uh, at sunset. I believe at sunset. You can't let it fly all night long. Right. So what Disney does is they have a veteran that's at the park for the day. They find a veteran and they have the veteran come and bring the flag down from the flagpole. But all those little flags along the top of the of the roofs, they, they fly all night. And the way they get around it is there's not 50 stars. It's not technically a U.S. flag. It's representative of the U.S. flag. Right. That, that amazes me. Anyway, flags. See, that's what I love about you is you can take a topic that you look at the title and go, yeah. and you're able to make it interesting. You find interesting facts about, about mundane things. I love that. Well, I think everything has a history and well, not everything, but you know, there's a story behind almost everything. And if you look at yep. it the right way, then right. you can find what makes it interesting. Coming up, the history of disposable napkins. Now, there's a thing that didn't become a... <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. Here's a list of some of the worst cars ever made. Number five. So, the Saturn Ion, named the second worst car of the millennium, um, had kind of a poor build quality, a terrible interior styling, and it ended up being the nail in the coffin for Saturn. Saturn never recovered from the Ion and had to shutter its doors. Number four, the Ford Pinto. Now, most cars in the 70s, they were starting to design them more and more for safety, but uh, not so much the Pinto. Because of a design failure, um, if it was rear-ended, if it, if it sustained a rear impact, it caused, in many cases, a fuel filler to come loose and puncture the tank, and it would explode. Oh, my. <laughs> it was pretty much a Molotov cocktail on wheels. <laughs> Number three, the three-wheeled Davis Divan. It was made from 1947 to 1949, plagued with claims of fraud and grand theft. The Davis Motor Company only made 13 <laughs> of these, which were just insane looking before the bottom fell out and they could not justify mm. making more. I don't think they could have justified the 13. Number two, the Reliant Robin was the named the worst British car of all times. The Reliant Robin was another of the failed three-wheel experiments. Um, originally conceived to be classified as a motorcycle, 
with relaxed licensing rules. The robin, or as they more affectionately refer to it in the UK, the plastic pig, uh, came in four variations with a top speed of 85 miles per hour and no reverse. And to exacerbate the problem, uh, while you know you couldn't back up, the steering wheel would often pop off in your hands. And number one, the 1975 Trabant. It was supposed to be an alternative to the VW Beetle. Uh, however, manufacturing design, a serious afterthought. Body panels were prone to falling off. The 18-horsepower motor didn't make high speeds really an issue. There were no turn signals or brake lights. No big deal. We don't need no stinking brake lights. <laughs> we were into social distancing before it became a thing. We just thought we were shy. This is The Box of Oddities. Sifting through our email inbox, I, I found this. Hey, Kat and Jethro, just listening to a recent podcast where JG was talking about why docs don't do house calls anymore. Another reason is the motherfucking cocksucking insurance companies. <laughs> no, I'm not bitter. Actually reimburse less when I do a procedure or office call when I'm in a patient's house. Now, their explanation, I have no overhead when I'm at a patient's house. It's the patient's house, so they're paying the mortgage, utilities, etc. Fuckers. <laughs> Love you guys. And then I won't read his name because, well, he's a doctor. So so there you have it. That's amazing. Okay, I got something for you. I think you'll find this, well, interesting and hopefully a bit entertaining because who doesn't enjoy a delicious revenge story? Ooh. This is according to an amazing article that I came across in Bloomberg Business Week by Zeke Foe. Andrew Therian was working from home in a, in a small Rhode Island town. He was a salesman for a promotions company. Uh, that day, which was in February of 2015, he was calling different food vendors and talking to them about setting up grocery store giveaways. That was his job. Okay. At one point during the day, he got a call from his wife and she had received a very aggressive voicemail from a guy saying that uh, Andrew was in some sort of trouble. The message said, quote, I need to verify an address to present you with a formal claim. Andrew Therian, you are now officially notified. And he, his wife didn't know what it was about. Right. He didn't know what it was about. And then a few minutes later, Therian's phone rang and it was the, that guy. He gave his name as Charles Cartwright and said that Therian owed $700 on a payday loan. But he, Therian knew he didn't owe anybody anything. Right. So he suspected it was a scam. And he told Cartwright, you know, pretty much what he could do with his scare tactics. Sure. Cartwright slammed the phone down on him and then called back a few minutes later and was just furious. He said he wanted to meet face to face to teach Therian a lesson. And Therian said, quote, come on by, asshole. And Cartwright said, the collection agency guy said, I will. And I hope your wife is at home. And it was at that point that Cartwright threatened to rape Andrew's wife. What? Yeah. This is getting extreme fast. 
Yeah, things escalated pretty quickly there. Um, Andrew was understandably so friggin' angry he couldn't even think clearly. He wanted to find out who this guy was, and he wanted to make this guy pay, because clearly these are not the type of business practices reputable collection agencies use. No, and I've heard that this does happen from time to time, that um, collection agencies, you know, oftentimes will buy debt from other companies, and they because they buy it at such a break, they use really extreme measures to try to get people to pay. And there was a story that I read about how they can go to some pretty extreme measures. So so he wanted to exact revenge on this dude because (laughs) he threatened to rape his wife. Number one. Number two, he was being an aggressive asshole for a debt that, that Andrew did not Right. In the back of his mind, though, at the same time, he was concerned that maybe this was some kind of a shady loan shark who had bad information and would carry out his threats. Sure. So he remembered that Cartwright had left a number with his wife, so he dialed that number. He was dealing with a scam known as phantom debt, which you just touched on. Millions of Americans are hassled to pay back money they do not owe. It begins when somebody gathers tons of personal information and data that's available easily and cheaply online. Things like uh, long-expired obligations, old loan applications, data from hacked accounts, and they reformat some of it to make Make it look like it is a current debt. Right. They use uh, little bits of truth to make uh, a fake debt. Sometimes they package it with legitimate debt to kind of pad it out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the package is completely fabricated. They make deals with unscrupulous collectors who demand repayment of these fictitious bills. Mm. And they often target the poor and elderly. These are people who are probably getting, or in some ca- many cases, getting lots of calls about loans. Some people are convinced it's real because the collectors know so much personal information about them. Sure. The thing is that scammers will often sell the same portfolios of debt over and over again. So a legitimate IOU gains illegitimate clones. Some inflate the balances. Others create, quote, redo lists. These are people who have settled their debt, but they'll be harassed again. Now, those particular types of portfolios are more valuable because the targets have proved to be willing to part with their money over the phone. Right. And uh, and then there are those who just in, invent debts out of thin air. Sure. They just make shit up. Based, they get a hold of your social security number and they just make up a debt. Back in uh, 2012, there was a call center in India that was uh, busted for making 8 million calls in eight months to collect fictitious made-up bills. Wow. And in most cases, they can't even identify the original perpetrators because the data files have been sold and repackaged so many times that uh, the victims end up just having to take the abuse. Most victims, that is, not Andrew. (laughs) When the scammers started to hound him, he hounded them right back. Obsessed with payback, he spent hundreds of hours investigating this collection firm. That's awesome. This guy, he has like superpower-like abilities that he honed over the years working on the phones for his uh, day job. He was a master of persuasion. He had uh, this dogged ability to get to the person who made the decisions. And so he took those skills and he applied them here. He was charming. He was intelligent. He uh, was unintimidated. In other words, they picked the wrong guy to fuck with. Um, He spent the next 
two years of his life relentlessly pursuing the source of this scam to exact revenge by giving them a taste of their own medicine. Wow. So he started out befriending loan sharks, and then he blackmailed crooked collectors. <laughs> getting them to divulge their suppliers and then the suppliers' suppliers. Kind of like, you know, flipping witnesses in a, a, a DEA investigation or something. Again, according to Bloomberg Businessweek, when Therian dialed that number Cartwright had left, a woman answered the phone. She said uh, that she worked for Lakefront Processing Solutions in Buffalo. She'd never heard of Charles Cartwright, uh, but she implied that he was he might have been like a freelancer or some sort of bounty hunter. Um, regardless, she said, Theron could clear everything up by making a payment. Her records indicated he, ho he owed a payday lender called Vista. So Theron gets online and he starts digging. He found, finds a securities filing saying Vista had merged with a company called That Marketing Solution, Inc. You know those uh, personal information websites, if you're trying to find somebody's address, you oh, know, sure. 10 bucks and they'll give you all the public information about them. Well, that's what he did. He spent a couple of bucks on an online people search service and he got the president of that company on the line. And he said, you sold my personal information to a bunch of thugs. I want to know why. I want to know what you're going to do about it. And within hours, the company provided a letter saying that Theron had never borrowed anything from Vista. Nice. So armed with that proof that uh, his debt was invalid, Therian turned back to Lakefront. And through more searches, he found their corporate parent, which was owned by two guys in Buffalo. So he calls them up and he calls up their lawyer and he bombards them with calls, call after call after call. He called them at home. He called them on, on their cell phone. They got so many calls that Lakefront totally backed off for good. That's really impressive. But he wasn't done. <laughs> Every night after his wife went to sleep, he got out his laptop and he started combing through lawsuits and filings and uncovered the owners of the agencies that had been calling him. Because by then, his name had gotten out in a lot of different uh, packages and he was starting to get bombarded with, with calls from other agencies. So he starts calling them. He called them at their home. He made it clear that he wouldn't go away until they revealed who supplied their debt portfolios. Here's the deal, he'd say. I really don't care about you. <laughs> There's a million guys like you out there. You will never get your money back, so you might as well get some blood out of it. Tell me what I need to know to put these guys in jail. Sometimes he would even go as far as to make a small payment on a fake debt and then trace the, the bank records back to who was getting the money. Wow. Following the money. He found people that were uh, convicted of um, counterfeiting, drug dealing, stock fraud, and child molestation were behind these companies. So he started a spreadsheet, which I know you would appreciate. I'm listening. <laughs> He never stopped. Even on the weekends, he'd be watching New England Patriots games and, and he'd just get on his phone to hassle these guys on it while he was on his couch <laughs> watching the game. He'd just call him at home. Hey, what are you going to do about this? So this guy was kind of a savant. He used uh, persuasion techniques he'd learned during his day selling copiers and, and working the phones. And, and some of the uh, techniques were drawn from a book that he had read called Getting Into Your Customers' Heads. So he was turning this back against them. His targets were shocked by this guy's persistence. They were used to dealing with people, you know, people would call and complain and then they would just say, okay, we, we won't bother anymore. And then the people would go away. One shady debt player tells uh, Zeke Foe, the author of the Bloomberg article, that he suspected there 
Kazarian was a uh, an undercover federal investigation because he had so much information on his business. He said, it's an obsession, it's unbelievable, an outright vigilante crusade. It doesn't seem to equal the harm that was done to him. <laughs> so for a time, he focused on Buffalo, which is a mecca for the collection industry. Agencies that work the oldest, cheapest paper, mm -hmm. they're usually the, the shadiest of the shady. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, debt collector is a more common job in Buffalo than bartender or construction worker. What? Yeah. That's nuts. It's, a, it's an industry. As Therian wore down as many Buffalo collectors as he could, one name kept surfacing, Joel Tucker a former payday loan mogul from Kansas City, Missouri. By the summer of 2015, Therian was convinced he had found the guy, the guy that originally packaged all this stuff and sold it out to all these different agencies. Okay. Therian came looking for Joel Tucker in the fall of 2015, but Tucker proved to be a hard man to find. He had been divorced a couple of times and he'd moved around quite a bit. Therian couldn't find a working phone number for him. He even called the guy's 81-year-old mother, Norma, oh my looking for him. She didn't know where he was, or that's what she said. His tactics grew more intense in a way similar to the debt collectors that he was uh, he was chasing. Sure. He even got a burner app that provided disposable numbers for his smartphone with any area code that he wanted. Oh, wow. Like in Buffalo, he developed a network of sources in Kansas City. He, he learned uh, who hated whom, and then he played them off each other. He called wives and widows, business partners, anyone he could find that had some sort of contact with Joel Tucker. Wow. In January 26, a former employee of Tucker's agreed to arrange a call between the two to, to clear the air. Therian couldn't believe that Tucker was willing to talk to him. So he set up a recording device in his office, and he picked up the phone, and he called Tucker. Tucker was all jacked up. Um, he was very defensive, telling Theron that um, if any of the portfolios he had sold now contained phantom debt, they must have been doctored after leaving his hands. Quote, fucking shame on them, he said. It wasn't me. It had to be them. Tucker asked him, he, he didn't understand why Therian was so invested in this. The transcript of the recording reveals that Therian said calmly, this is a quote, I'll tell you why I care. I'm just telling you what I believe. You sold my personal information 21 times. I've gotten close to 100 fucking calls. And because I've gotten those 100 calls from scumbag collectors that you facilitated, I'm going to make sure that this shit ends now. Tucker paused and he said, You think this is my fault? Andrew says, I'm giving you the opportunity to come clean. I don't know who you are, Andrew, Tucker said. Who are you? Andrew said, and I picture it sounding like this. I'm a person you fucked with too many times. He's like the Charles Bronson of debt collection. <laughs> yes. And so Tucker said, okay, we need to get the stuff resolved. He said with a sigh, because this, it's not healthy for anybody. The men started talking and texting several times a week. Theron said in uh, the interview with Bloomberg Businessweek, quote, I think he has a mental illness that allows him to think that he can't do anything wrong, that he oh. didn't do anything wrong. Oh. Hmm. That happens sometimes. It does. Therian soon obtained two crucial sets of documents. In March 2016, a California debt broker handed over some contracts that Tucker had signed, and then Therian received an email from the manager of a collection agency. That email included actual phantom debt files with names and social security uh, numbers. So he could prove yeah. that it was, in fact, Tucker who yep. had created this false debt. 
So he turns this information over to the uh, Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. And just coincidentally, at that time, an ongoing and different FTC suit drew Joel Tucker in, directing him to return $30 million he'd received in ill-gotten profits from the business. Tucker told the court he was broke. So I imagine they probably called him all the time looking for money. But this had nothing to do with what Andrew was doing. Wow. This was something that just coincidentally happened at that time. But finally, in December 2016, the FTC sued Tucker for selling phantom debt based on the records and info gathered by Andrew Therian. Tucker had invented more than $7.7 million in fake debts and sold them to a series of middlemen for $4.2 million. A judge ruled for the FTC, ordering Tucker to pay back that money on top of the $30 million he already owed. Oof. So after the ruling against Tucker, Therian heard from him for the first time in months. He called him up. Tucker's brother, Scott, had just been convicted of all 14 charges that he faced. And without directly asking Therian to drop his vendetta, he seemed to be pleading for mercy. He said, quote, I've fucking had enough harm done to me. I've lost a brother. I got a brother going to prison. Put it this way, Andrew. I'm tired, buddy. I'm fucking tired. Therian said, I'm tired too because they're still harassing me. Those motherfuckers are still calling me. It wasn't over for Tucker even then. According to an article on KansasCity.com website, just last May, after finding... This is a quote from the article. After finding that Prairie Village businessman Joel Tucker allegedly spent money on luxuries like private jets, a Cadillac Escalade, and a private club in Vail, Colorado, without paying millions in outstanding tax liabilities, authorities decided to add tax evasion charges to his legal troubles. Whoa. Tucker, who was indicted on several counts related to a scheme where he allegedly sold bogus consumer debt portfolios, was charged this week in a superseding indictment with tax evasion. The new charge alleges he received business income and loans, did not report it on his taxes, did not pay down more than the $8 million in outstanding taxes, penalties, and interest. He was sent to prison to serve a 16-year, 8-month prison sentence. His wife abandoned their house. The Internal Revenue Service seized his house. House. And then between June 28th and June 30th of 2019, they sold all of his shit at an estate sale. More than a thousand people showed up to buy Tucker's professional racing memorabilia, furniture, exercise equipment, other property left behind when he went to prison. So there you go. That guy is, to me, he's like Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. It's he, nuts. He would not be stopped. You can check out the full in-depth article in Bloomberg Business Week. It's a much more in-depth, detailed account of Andrew Therian's um, activities. I was just kind of giving you the thumbnail. Great article and a great story. That's incredible. Also, I wonder if we should have some sort of like fuck warning because this episode is full of fucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> this episode is rated F. Well, you guys take care of yourself. We're um, looking forward to seeing you again as soon as possible. We're just at home playing darts, now ping pong, and hanging out with you. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. That white and brown freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore... It's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. 
Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.